I'm really excited to bring you the upcoming interview with a very special guest. You'll hear him discussing all the great and courageous work that he's currently engaged in. And if you feel inspired to help him continue these efforts, please consider making a donation earmarked for his projects. Or feel free to give a general donation that will support the wider movement in Myanmar. Our ongoing support is so helpful and appreciated by the Burmese people during these dark days. Simply go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today. Or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Now, let's hear from that guest himself. containment and mitigation, the number could go way up, many, many millions. Uh, to be isolating patients, emphasizing social distancing. Wuhan, uh, China, it's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. That COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Italy, one of the worst affected countries. The and business supply chains are being disrupted around the globe. This combination of people being She was interviewed on March 29th. If I stay home, I start feeling depressed. This is my daily work. This has become my duty. When I woke up on the morning of February 1st, I wondered why the internet wasn't working. I didn't understand what was going on. Then a neighbor knocked on my door and told me that Myanmar was under a military dictatorship now. I couldn't believe it. Was it a bad joke? Was it fake news? I tried to contact my family and friends, but there was no phone signal. It was only after a few hours and once I was able to talk to my mother that I understood it was no joke. I live in a hostel with other youth in Lyne Township in Yango. I have been working for a couple of months as a monitoring and evaluation intern with an organization focusing on gender equality. I felt so confident and excited about the future. But the news of the coup completely changed my perspective on the opportunities that lay ahead. The military takeover was now a terrible reality we had been thrown into. I felt numb. I couldn't speak. What about my dreams? What about my future? Once the internet was reconnected, I was finally able to start exchanging messages with friends, making plans and organizing resistance which energized me. First, we heard the things that might get back to normal after three days, so we stayed home. But nothing happened. I knew this wasn't a solution. If they had stolen our future, we needed to fight back and stand up for our rights. Shortly after, I joined the first protest with a group of eight friends. It took place near the Ledan Center, a big shopping mall in Ledan Township. The crowd was incredible. I continue protesting with the same group of friends. Some are Gachin, others Gayen, and I am Dewe. During the first weeks, we met many people out in the streets and made many new friends. The unity of the crowd was so impressive. 
people respected each other and many were giving out donations. We organized ourselves online day after day. Throughout the march, however, we have been going into the streets less and less. The situation has become very dangerous in Yangon. It is basically a battleground, but only one side has guns. But in Lyon Township, Generation Z is still out in the streets, taking huge risks. Boys are worried about girls being at the front line. They want to protect us, so have asked us to stay further back. Most of our group members have gone back to their states and regions. There are only two of us left. My mother is calling me every day and asking me to come back home and stay with them. She is very worried. But if I go back, I won't be able to join the movement. My hometown is small and everybody knows everybody. The security forces would know what I am doing and I would end up in jail quickly. I would rather stay here and contribute to the movement as much as I can. Our beliefs are stronger than our fears. Even though many people have lost their lives, I believe we will win. We will get our democracy. Our hope for a better future is so strong. My generation, Generation Z, is showing so much determination. Every morning, we assess the situation. If we can, we go out, because we must fight. If I stay home, I start feeling depressed. This is my daily work. This has become my duty. We will realize see an opportunity in this situation. Please make your compassion Whatever and kindness karma to the people. You have that we are all protecting protecting for each other. Due to COVID-19, the Marie Vega become more conscious. They can certainly use this time to, to grow in them. Kick out your negative minds. People can become closer to each other. Please send Mitter to all over the world, all over the universe. Work hard more and more for sending loving kindness. People can learn how to love each other, how to love, seeing new horizons of life. We do see some positive aspects of this corona crisis. We all sitting in we see that in a sense that brings people also closer together. People getting closer together and watching out for each other. We have more time for our families, for the community, and. Time to meditate. Please make your compassion and loving kindness. It was kind of actually very warm and very, very kind of death. Stabilize the heart. This reminder of this uncertainty of life, when we don't know, see what we can do and what we cannot do, what we can accomplish and what we cannot. Remember peace in the face of suffering.
had been volunteering at uh, one of the protest area in Yangon, and uh, me and some of uh, my colleague are uh, seeing the patients at, at the clinic in secret, uh, which is located inside the monastery. Uh, we even prepared a mini operation theater just in case we cannot refer the patients uh, directly to the hospital due to the roadblocks set by the armed forces. Because uh, at the time, there are a lot of injured protesters who are not uh, given any chance to get uh, proper and adequate treatment. So we made these uh, underground secret clinics for, for uh, to take care of those injured protesters. But on one incident, I was late to go to the clinic, but all my friends and the colleague were there to see the patients. And then I suddenly I got a phone call from the from the neighbors that all the, the enforcers are everywhere on the streets and the clinic was raided. All the medical equipment were confiscated and my my colleague and, and other volunteers were abducted. And even uh, some of them said that even some patients were also abducted together with uh, with the doctors see, uh, seeing them. And for the very end, and the next day on the newspaper that these doctors and volunteers were abducted, they were arrested for the reason of having uh, um, murderous weapon in the clinic. But in reality, those were the scalpels, you know, surgical knives to, uh, to do the emergency operations in case we cannot transfer the patient injured protester to the to the hospital in time, so that we can uh, make emergency operations in the in our disc, uh, in our discrete clinic. So, but uh, the hunter uh, the claim that all these doctors possess lethal weapons, and and that's the only reason why they are abducted. But the reality is, uh, just as I mentioned before, so my friend and these volunteers were still in the prison for over four months for the very reason of having surgical scalpels, which, uh, for, for, which for the hunter was the murderous weapon. And uh, I'm very worried about the health condition of my colleague because there, there's an outbreak of disease in uh, disease in the prison, and um, and recently one doctor. Because I've been hearing uh, the many tragic stories of the, the medics who are detained in the prison for for providing medical treatment to to the wounded protesters, and and get and contracting COVID nineteen in prison due to the lack of care in custody and deliberate negligence of prison authorities. A denial of medical treatment caused the death of a general sergeant by COVID-19 in Mandalay prison. So I'm very worried about the, uh, the health condition of my colleague and other medics who are currently in, in, uh, in custody. B because of the, the, there's uh, many incidents of the torture during interrogation and the denial of treatment and and uh, lack of social distancing because uh, because of the 
you know, overcrowding in, in, in the prison room, which uh, around 100 to 300 people in a very uh, confined places, which is a very uh, dangerous for, for the uh, disease pre prevention. So I'm very worried about the condition of my colleague. And I, I myself was very lucky to escape that incident because uh, I was you know, five to four or five to 10 minutes late to go to the clinics. I was just on a um, very close to getting abducted with them. So I'll be in a prison for four months because of giving care to the wounded protesters. Uh, for the doctors, we have every right to uh, give our humanitarian uh, duties to whoever in need of uh, medical attention. But the hunter want to decide who get treatment and who doesn't. They want the doctors to walk under their murderous regime. And those who reject them are regarded as the enemies of the state. So nearly 600 medical professionals, including doctors and nurses, are in rent list issued by the Hunter and the Penal Code 505A for participating in the civil disobedience movement. Mm, thank you. So I'm speaking to Dr. Troy here, and he's been administering his duties as a doctor during the past six months of the coup and has just described a harrowing story in March when he and his colleagues were administering to protesters who'd been injured by the military and they were working out of a monastery. Uh, they had to do so in somewhat in secret because as the military is going after the medical staff with a real level of anger and vengeance for their role in CDM and also for their help in uh, bringing aid to the workers. And in this story, you mention how because you had been just five or 10 minutes late, you escaped abduction, torture, being in a prison cell. That was just a narrow miss. Your colleague, unfortunately, did not. So that's really quite tragic for you to have to uh, process, I imagine, that uh, because of circumstance, your close colleague was taken and you just managed to escape and he is still in prison and you don't know his circumstances. Uh, I'm just wondering mentally and personally, how have you made sense of or processed the just this luck of the draw that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and you happen not to be? How, how have you been able to understand that or come to grips with that? Yeah, totally. Uh, that incident came as a shock to me and I, I, I wasn't even I, I didn't even know what to do next because uh, should I escape or should I contact the uh, my professors to inform of this incident but I'm not sure whether they can uh, make a difference in that so I just decided to go in hiding for a few days and I even need had to or change my location for the security concerns because because of uh, you know I've been uh, seeing patients at the clinic for many times, but I was just lucky. Uh, I was very lucky to escape that incident, but he didn't. 
and and what you just mentioned about wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think a doctor being at a clinic is in a wrong place. It is just a wrong time and the wrong military, uh, wrong regime. You know that is what we are fighting, even risking our own lives. Many doctors are still refusing to return to their work in their country's healthcare system, e- even uh, amid the uh, the COVID cases. They refuse to return to the works because uh, they, or even when the doctors are seeing the patients in their own ways at uh, the charity clinics or the private hospitals with free of charge or sometimes with just a cost of the medicine, they are see, they are still being abducted by various, uh, you know, absurd charges. Uh, the 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 hunter claimed that uh, the 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 doctors in Myanmar are committing genocide by performing uh, by participating in the CDM, but in reality, they are the one uh, stopping the doctors from get, giving care to our own citizen and own fellow men. Uh, doctors are still seeing the patients, but. SEC, the haunter is the one making it impossible. Mm, right. So on that day in March, when you were working underground at a monastery, delivering aid to the protesters who were injured, were you aware of the risks at that time that something like this could be possible? Yeah, well, I had many stories about the, uh, the doctors getting abducted uh, recently in uh, in the various parts of the country, but uh, it uh, we feel like it, it is our uh, responsibility and duty to taking care to take care of these the injured protesters. We can just let them die and do nothing. We have to risk our own lives, but we take every security protocols and we 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 try to see them in discreet. But due to the informants. It is extremely difficult to do so, and then, um, uh, yeah. To answer your question, we know of the risks, but and we take every precautionary measures as much as possible. But we need to do this despite the risks to save the lives of our own fellow men. To do our duty, humanitarian duties, yeah. Right, right. And I'm wondering, did anything in your background ever prepare you for the things that you're facing now? I'm not sure how open or safe it is to talk about your background. So whatever you're able to share and whatever you have to leave out is fine. But did anything in your background or training prepare you for the kind of things that you're having to do during these six months? Yes. Thank you for the question. But uh, for the for for the security reasons, I have to leave some uh, specific information. Uh, so about that, so I I think uh, working as a volunteer doctor for many months, even before the coup, um, and I I I'm trying to go to the remote areas to see the patients, uh, with the medical volunteer teams, and um, uh, I. 
you know, I'm trying to uh, collect donation from from the community and then uh, and, and then uh, deliver the humanitarian aids to those in need with the help of my colleagues. And when the coup happened, uh, the deaths are the number of deaths are rising rapidly due to the uh, attacks by the by the hunter. So uh, that that's why I try to focus on uh, taking care of the wounded protester together with a colleague who share the similar interest, uh, despite the risks we have to take. Mm, so this was really a decision that you had to make early on of how much risk you wanted to take in order to help the people, which was quite different from your ordinary background and ordinary practice where you were sworn an oath to come and help people in any capacity and your own safety or well-being was not really part of the calculus of having to help others. Suddenly, you're now faced with the decision uh, of knowing that any to any extent that you help others to uh, recover from an injury or anything else, you're directly putting yourself at risk. And so you have to determine how far you're willing to be prepared to do that. Yeah, that's right. And the, another another reason is we have to fill the void of, uh, you know, you, we have to fill in the healthcare system that is left by the civil disobedience movement. We have responsibility to cover for the public uh, health system while our colleagues have to participate in the civil disobedience movement. That, and we have to support them and, uh, and fill in the spots that is left by, by, by this movement. And it's, uh, we feel that it's our responsibility uh, for the sake of our country. And we totally understand their decision because they believe that the country is in the emergency state and, the, and it is need, needed to be safe first. So as you made that decision, that's really quite a profound decision to make that you are now willing to place yourself in harm's way in order to continue helping others. Can you tell us a bit about what went into actually deciding to do that? Was that a difficult decision to make or was it automatic or what factors went into play as you were deciding to what extent you were willing to be involved and put yourself on the line? Yes. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, the first reason is the one I've mentioned before, uh, that, that is to support the mission of all the doctors in Myanmar to uh, protest against the murderous regime, to stand for the justice. And, uh, and that's, uh, we feel like it, it's, the, it's our responsibility to join the mission of the whole doctor. That's one of the reasons. But of course, there are many risks we have to take. And, and, and there are many incidents that uh, the family members of the activists or all the CDM doctors were abducted instead of them because they couldn't find them at, at their homes, uh, you know? So it also put uh, great risks to our own family. So it isn't a big, uh, uh, small decision. We, uh, we, have, uh, we have to take a lot of risks 
to make that decision. And um, but we don't have any other choices, any other choice. So yeah. Mm, so I'm sure in March after what happened with you barely escaping and your friend being abducted. And to this day, as you mentioned, he's in prison. You don't know his welfare. Uh, I'm sure that this was a real moment of realizing experientially the dangers involved, even if you knew before that the risks you were taking. This was actually an incident where you were face to face with that danger and that evil right in front of you. And I can't imagine how traumatic and um, difficult that must have been to live through that and how terrifying and how scary. So after this incident happened, did you reevaluate it all to the extent to which you wanted to be involved? Did, how did that affect your commitment and your level of involvement now having this near miss for yourself and having your friend actually taken away? Yes. Those active uh, attacks on the medical professionals are affecting all the doctors. Some of them have to, uh, you know, give up on the uh, uh, medical doctor license because of the because of the they participated in the CDM or or, or uh, uh, in the gen, uh, in the white coat strike. By the doctors, they have to or uh, stay in. Uh, they have to stay in hiding. They have to, or uh, you know, uh, see the patients in public uh, and and uh, uh, continue their current walks. They have to. Uh, this changes um, their whole life. You know, these attacks change their whole life. Some some family members even have to change location of. Due to these attacks, uh, for me, I have to uh, walk as uh, anonymity. Even when I am doing for a good deed, by volunteering or helping of those in need, we have to do it in discreet because of our uh, huge concern for the own or for our own safety. We are not even safe to take care of someone. Who, who needs our help? Uh, so, so uh, sometimes there there are some uh, there are cases we couldn't uh, get proper medical treatment due to uh, the roadblocks set by the armed forces and uh, and due to the attacks on the medics. So these incidents uh, make us uh, feel like uh, uh, you know. The, the crushing guilt of a helpless doctor who could do nothing but to let it let the patient slip away to death right in front of his own eyes. Hmm. I'm so sorry. The inhumanity of that is really hard to imagine at any level. I guess I'm wondering how you do make sense of it. I don't know if one can, but I'm wondering the, the, the feelings inside you when this is happening, that your sworn duty to, to help people and provide aid, that there is this active force that is doing everything it can to prevent and even try to cause harm to you for simply, as you say, doing a good deed and trying to help someone else out. What is, how does that feel 
to you to have to be faced with that day after day now? Because we feel like uh, we have to speak up for those who don't have a voice anymore. We have to fulfill the duties for those who are currently detained or who are even outright murdered. And that we feel like it's our responsibility and our duty to fill the gaps that is left by them and our colleagues who are still continuing their civil disobedience movement under these dangerous and difficult conditions. So so the doctors who are current uh, so far safe feel like it is our duty and responsibility even amid those dangerous and security concerns. We feel like it's our uh, this, we feel like it's our, you know, uh, it, it is, we feel like it's our group mission, you know. If, even if someone is uh, abducted, uh, we, we have to double our efforts to fulfill that mission, no matter what dangers or many difficulties we face. We have our common goal and we are very united and uh, we, we are not going to give up. Uh, now or never, until we we achieve our we achieve the true democracy of our country. So, in the statement that you just said, I noticed that you responded a number of times by saying "we," and that seems to infer that you're speaking not just from yourself, but from like a larger peer group of doctors who are in this together and having mutual support and solidarity and everything else. So. Uh, what more can you say about that? What, uh, how have you gained uh, motivation and help from your peer group? And what is the role of other doctors in supporting and encour- encouraging other people through these hard times? Yeah, well, you know, the people were so united in their quest to restore democracy, in the great unity across uh, all the social layers previously and seen in the country people are responding to the coup as one. The whole country was moving as one and carrying out strikes frequently or, uh, you know, despite uh, being in a huge danger. And that was a huge blow to the hunter who claimed themselves as the savior of the country from the political party carrying out voter fraud. And they claim that 40 million people who support them and and uh, struggling um, economy after the COVID-19 will be prosperous under their rule. But as and I don't think we need to state, say it loud that nobody in Myanmar believe their lives anymore. Mm. So after this March incident where you barely escaped, did that have any effect on changing the way that you went about your work? Uh, to be honest, you, you know, it's very difficult for the doctors to uh, give emergency life-saving measures to those who are injured by the injury in a protest. And in some incidents, the, the, the attacks are directly uh, targeted towards the doctors first, even before the protesters. So it's we feel like we are being targeted systematically by the hunter, or 
one for the uh, for for being participated in CDM and the other for giving care to the protesters who believe who they claim as their enemy of the state. So it's very difficult for the doctors to give medical care to the uh, to the protesters. So we believe that the other solution is to give medical education of the basic physic measures to everyone so that everyone can save lives. Uh, not they don't have to rely only on the doctors who are who are being uh, systematically targeted and repressed, uh, relentlessly repressed. So uh, they can give uh, medical care themselves and they can give life-saving measures. So, so that is why many of the doctors try to focus on the first aid training of the general public uh, so that um, uh, we can save many lives. Yeah. Mm, so you've begun to start organizing and administering first aid training courses for protesters to come and learn themselves. Is that correct? That's right. Mm, and how's that been going? Yeah, but, uh, for now, um, me and our few friends have been conducting basic physic training over 1,500 uh, participants from various mm -hmm. parts of the country. Mm, how long are these courses? Uh, over three months. Oh, wow. Three-month courses. Are they intensive? No, no, no. I mean, uh, over three months, we have trained 1,500. The, the course is a oh, uh, short right. course for two days. Okay, so it's a, a two-day course, and you've been giving it for three months, and you've trained 1,500 volunteers. That's right. Mm, and how has that been going? What kind of results have you seen? And uh, many people... Uh, we get we are getting feedback that many people feel uh, more confident in and taking care of each other, even if they are not uh, at the protest area. They can give emergency measures when they are at home at the curfew areas because they couldn't. They are not safe to go to the hospital, even if uh, even someone is having. Um, a medical emergency. It isn't even safe to go outside because one can be shot anytime or on the way to the hospital. Nowhere is safe for them. So many people feel that uh, uh, getting uh, knowing of basic first aid feel, uh, make them feel more safe. Yeah. Mm, and I think that's also a really great idea because as you mentioned before, Healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, medical volunteers, these are being targeted first in some cases by the military because they were at the forefront of the CDM movement. And so there's a special kind of anger and vengeance seen towards people in this profession. That seems to me a very brilliant and innovative way to respond that you are now taking those skills and you're dispersing them and sharing them in basic qualities to as many people as possible so that they don't rest in those few professionals that could be easily targeted. So I spoke to a young doctor at the beginning of the protests, and one of the things that he mentioned was that before the street marches really started, he and a number of doctors attended online sessions talking about the kinds of injuries that they expected they might face. And they they learned this training through these online seminars. But when he actually went to the front lines, he 
then saw things that nothing could have prepared him for, no matter what he had been discussing in the sessions, you know, um, people missing limbs and blood flowing freely. Of course, uh, headshots where there's nothing you can do to someone who's just been shot in the head and any number of other just very gruesome and bloody and horrifying injuries that weren't were in front of him and that he had to face and that this training, however well-intended it was, uh, could barely uh, advise him on what it was like to actually be in those wartime conditions. And I think that's probably true of medics anywhere. I think even war medics that do training before they actually go off to the war, uh, nothing can really prepare them for the carnage that they're going to see and the chaos that they're going to find on the ground that is very different from an operating room. Even for doctors who've seen some terrible things in an operating room, wartime conditions are in fact quite different and it's hard to have adequate training for that. So what has been your experience and the experience of those you've worked with and seeing what you've learned and what you've studied and then what it's actually been like to be confronted with the actual real conditions that you're facing? Yeah. I have, I uh, personally, I didn't have to face many horrible uh, injuries by myself. I think some minor injuries and uh, some blunt trauma due to the attacks by the patrons, by, by, by the armed forces. But some of my uh, colleagues have, have seen many uh, injuries who were uh, very severe, like, uh, like, like just the one you mentioned uh, that around amputation of the limbs. And some have to, some of my colleagues have to sue, uh, to make suturing of the wound, in, in um, you know, with the mirror, with the help of the touch light, because the clinic was has to close, and the lights have to turn off due to the security because of the ant forces are on the street. She had to she had to hide the protester in her own clinic and then turn off all the light and she sutured the wound with just the help of the touch light. You know, it's it's really difficult for her to, to perform in, in that situation, uh, in 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 the in a great danger. Mm, right. What can you say about some of the other conditions that that you or your colleagues have had to face that there's no real preparation for? Yeah, on one incident uh, that happened on. 27 March, there are many uh, tragedies that happen on the day because of the, uh, uh, you know, many, many people protest on the day and uh, the, the, they were brutal cracked on by the armed forces. But, and we, uh, we even prepared uh, a medical team with, medical officers, sergeants, emergency doctors, orthopedists, and general practitioners. But we didn't have chance to take care of those who needed our help because of the roadblocks on the armed forces. We know someone was shot on the abdomen, and that could be potentially saved if we were given a chance to take care of them. Uh, and and she, he or uh, he, and he get to transfer to the hospital in time, but we didn't even get chance to go to the uh, 
the patients because of the roadblocks by the armed forces. And the police, are, the, the armed forces are shooting everyone they see on the road because uh, so that we couldn't go to them and that all the patients can be carried to our clinic because of these systematic attacks by the hunter. So we even uh, uh, prepare to be transfused blood with our donors. We even prepare many operation teachers, but they are using, uh, you know, they are attacking systematically so that they, those injured protesters couldn't be saved. Mm -hmm. That's what right. I experienced by myself. Did any of this come as any surprise to you? You obviously know the military from being born and raised there, but we haven't seen this kind of cruelty in a number of years. So as you're directly experiencing this level of inhumanity and even evil, did this come as any surprise to you or was it really what you were expecting from the start? Yeah, to be honest, we didn't expect this because we, uh, because the youths like us have been uh, living and uh, and uh, the democracy by, uh, which is which is an even a true, true democracy. But our country is moving towards the democracy, and everyone has the rights to speak, and uh, we don't have uh, and and we can get the sense of freedom so that we didn't know uh, about the brutality and by the hunter uh, so, so that we didn't believe that they would be such inhuman so one uh, we only we can only believe our eyes or believe believe it when we see it see this by our own eyes and uh, to be honest when I see them, killing our own people. I see them as the monsters in uniform. I don't see them. We don't, uh, they, we don't feel like they are even humans. They are just like monsters who are wearing ma military uniform because uh, any human being won't be that brutal. You know, uh, so, and no, no one would be happy to shot someone on head. They are, they, they are in, even some videos on the internet that when the armed forces can shot uh, our civilians, our pro-democracy protesters on hell, they celebrated with the dance and um, um, uh, with, with, with some of the armed forces, like they, um, uh, they shot uh, s some animal on the head. Uh, they are celebrating like, uh, like a victory. Oh, so... We, it that, that came as a shock to everyone in in our country, and that motivate us. If we don't, if we don't continue our walk, if we don't, if we give up here, our future generation have to live under this murderous regime, and that this isn't just about us. This is about the future generation of our uh, of our country, and uh, and uh, uh, and the future. Of, of our country, you know? Yeah, that's what motivates us. Mm, right, so it seems that during the protests in uh, March and April were quite bloody crackdowns of daily death counts and there were some terrible things happening on the street. And I think 
that the military was probably hoping that as in previous times, this level of open brutality and cruelty would scare the people back into their homes and the, uh, the, the enthusiasm for the protest would kind of come to an end. But instead, as you have said, it actually inspired people's um, a commitment to resist even stronger given what was happening. And my question for you is that since around April or so, the cruelty and the killings that have happened on the street have have not been happening to the same extent. I think that was probably a calculated decision by the military to not want to keep getting international attention for all these terrible things that were being shown on live video stream of what was actually happening. But instead, that doesn't mean the cruelty has in any way gone away or diminished. It's just not quite happening in front of our eyes. It's happening behind closed doors in ways that we're only getting little whispers of what's actually taking place. So as a doctor, I wonder if you have any more information about this. I I imagine that these days you're not quite, well, these days uh, you're, you're dealing with COVID, which we'll get into in a moment. But before the third wave of the COVID pandemic, I imagine you weren't administering aid to the same level that you were back in March when there, there was much more violence on the streets. But that doesn't mean that the violence isn't happening. It just means it's away from our eyes and our knowledge. And as a doctor, I wonder if you have any information or awareness about that transition taking place and the level of uh, of beatings and torture and killing that is still taking place, but just away from our eyes. Yes. Even uh, amid the, the deadly COVID crisis, the attacks on the medical professionals and the attacks on the pro-democracy pro- protesters continue. And many of these in- incidents are not widely known or reported because of the nationwide communication cutoff and information blackout. And uh, around 1,000 people has already dead due to the direct actions of the military, uh, military armed forces. And, and that is due, only due to the, uh, uh, that's not even counting those who are indirectly affected by the coup, like those in uh, uh, you know those who have to uh, leave from their home and and uh, f- uh, flee from their home and uh, hide in the refugees and those who don't get uh, require medical treatment due to their security concerns and who couldn't get uh, medical care and died due to the uh, concerns over the security or, or in transportation during at curfew hour. So, and that's just a tip of the iceberg. Those 1,000 deaths are just the tips of the iceberg. And in reality, the, num- the number of actual cases who are affected by the coup are much higher. Mm, right. I think that's so. And many are now in prisons and we don't necessarily know their whereabouts or their welfare. Have doctors been allowed any access to any of the prisoners to check on their medical conditions? Not at all. We, uh, we had some, we, we had that there, there used to be, uh, clinics in prison, but, uh, uh according to our uh, update update information that 
they, of course, they are still clinics, but they are not seeing patients. They are not taking care of, uh, they, they are not giving any medical treatment of, of those sick and injured uh, prisoners. Many uh, uh, denied medical treatment. Um, and uh, and just recently, our, our uh, General Sergeant died of COVID-19 due to the denial of treatment by the military regime. That's just an example, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then with all of this, then we move into this third wave of COVID. If this all wasn't bad enough, we now are seeing COVID hit Myanmar to greater extent than uh, almost anywhere in the world in the past year and a half. So before we get into the third wave, can you give us some background on the first two waves uh, of the history of how the pandemic has entered Myanmar before and what has how the healthcare system and the government has responded prior to the coup, just so we have some background and context to understand what's happening right now with the third wave. Yes. Uh, on 10th of October 2020, uh, during the second wave of COVID-19 in Myanmar, we had the highest number of new cases of COVID-19 per day of all time with 2,158 new cases. This number later fall into relatively more manageable 218 new cases by the end of January 2021, one day before the coup. The number of active cases on the 20, uh, sorry, 31st of January 2021 was, was 11,942 cases. Myanmar was also one of the uh, earliest country in in the Southeast Asia to receive COVID-19 vaccinations and to start the vaccination program. Uh, on sec- 22nd, uh, 22nd of January, the country received 1.5 million COVID-19 vaccines dose from India Serum Institute. Myanmar also purchased 30 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine doses, which would be delivered in batches. The country was also planning to start providing COVID vaccines to about 20% of its 54 million population in April 2021 under the Global COVAX Affordable uh, Medicine Program. Uh, However, after the coup, the number of new cases dropped just to 21 cases on 9 of February. It's still at very low number until 26th of May, where only 22 cases were reported. Starting from 27, the number of daily new cases such exponentially at 96 new cases on the day, reaching a new peak on 1st of July with 2,070 new cases, the highest since the beginning of the coup, and the level and seen since all-time high in the season wave back in October 2020. So, and the the daily records are breaking previous day uh, records again and again, and it has reached to the 4,000 over a short time. So that brings us to the third wave. Can you share a bit about in the last couple weeks or so since it's really broke, 
what we've been seeing with this new outbreak in the pandemic of the third wave, how how it's been breaking and what the response has been. Yeah, it's quite uh, worrisome. There's currently a shortage of oxygen everywhere. The number of people across the country are having breathing problems. And a 40-liter oxygen canister is going for $150 US dollar. Because of the panic buying of these canisters, factory cannot keep up with the demand of oxygen anymore. Uh, everyone knows that the, the disease is now uncontrollably spread among the population. People are panicking and taking a cocktail of drugs in hopes of getting elevating the symptoms if they cannot prevent it. Many dies in doves every day. New clusters are appearing everywhere. One can be killed by a bullet outside while protesting or can be killed by COVID-19 in one's own home. Nowhere is safe for people of Myanmar. Mm, right, and you mentioned that people are buying these canisters, uh, which where the, the price is really hiked up. Of course, once you get a canister, you need to fill it with oxygen. And so what has been the possibility of getting oxygen refills in Myanmar? How has that gone? Uh, you know, uh, the... They, they, you know, they, they have been unverified reports that the Honru have been confiscating oxygen canisters and shutting down the oxygen providing uh, facilities to hospitals controlled by them, potentially cutting off oxygen supply to the public. That has resulted in the rise of the prices of the oxygen canisters, and we, and we, we are hearing many tragic stories of people who are dying because of they couldn't get oxygen in time and and uh, I have many colleagues who are st- who are seeing uh, COVID-19 patients via telecommunication that many people are dying because of the lack of oxygen and and uh, and that that's the main reason of them dying and and you know the demand of oxygen far outstrips the supply, and many cities are having a shortage of oxygen canisters and protection facilities. People are crowding up in front of oxygen facilities, lining up to a chance to fill their canisters, in hope of helping their sick family members back at home, all while potentially getting themselves infected. Yeah, that is just a nightmare situation. And you were describing before, after the coup, about what the doctors were trying to do to support the people during those first couple months of a lot of violence in the streets. Now we have the third wave of the pandemic, which is just unchecked and going like wildfire. So how have the doctors been responding to this third wave outbreak? Yeah. Obviously, there, there's a shortage of medical professionals in Myanmar due to various reasons. But the doctors uh, and the, the other medical prof- uh, healthcare workers are doing our best to combat the COVID pandemic. We are now 
both physically and mentally exhausted because of uh, uh, the uh, the great number of cases, the the rise of the COVID cases in a short time, and and our grave concern of our own security. So it's really difficult for the doctors in Myanmar to, to combat the, the, the disease when the hunter is actively preventing uh, to, uh, you know, actively attacking the healthcare system. Yeah, I know it's hard to figure out how to make sense of it. And I wonder what are doctors even able to do? The cards are so stacked against them. The military has been looking for them and abducting them since the very beginning and any form they give aid. So they have to go underground and, and give aid in secret ways. And then they're closing off oxygen factories. They're preventing the importation of different kinds of medical goods that will be able to actually help the people. And the doctors themselves are having to make sure they stay healthy and they don't contract COVID. So I, I don't know how doctors would even begin to respond under these circumstances. I think these are true heroes for even trying to do something in these kind of impossible odds. So what, uh, with these limited options available, what have doctors and volunteers even been able to do to try to meet this overwhelming need and terror of the third wave that's coming out now? Okay, thank you. So we have many doctors in the country who, despite being chased down by the military and charged with high prison for participating in the CDM, are doing whatever they can in their capacity to perform the humanitarian duties of giving care to the patients, even when hiding. And many volunteer doctors and underground clinics are operating discreetly due to the, threat, due to the threats to their own security. People do not know where to get themselves tested due to this discreet nature. Because of the constant surveillance, the fear of informants and the notorious attacks on these healthcare networks giving care to the patients, there's a complete failure of the referral system. And it's really difficult for, for, for the doctors to, to, to refer the patient because uh, refer the patient to the designated center. You know, with all the qualifying personnel to combat the spread of the disease are either detained or outright murdered. There is no concerted effort, nor cooperating among the, uh, among the key stakeholders in the country to combat the spread of the disease. The effects of such reckless behavior and hands-off hands approach accumulated an exponential increase in the number of cases since late June. So what is your evaluation of where this could be leading? What, what, is the, what are the scenarios and the potentials of what you're playing in your mind of how bad this can actually get, given that it's not just going unchecked? The spread of the pandemic is actually being encouraged by the military itself. We've heard stories about... Uh, infected people being brought to cluster areas to intentionally infect and spread to a wider population. So given what is not just neglect, but also intentional infections and the denial of medical services, 
where do you see this going? How bad is it going to get? Yes, the hunter has been allowed to run the country for nearly six months, and not a single moment have they shown any interest in the well-being of the people. And uh, the failure or the to rapidly contain the COVID situation in Myanmar will soon pose a threat to the global COVID-19 containment strategy. We are seeing a rise in COVID cases in the neighboring countries. In China, for example, in Yunnan, region bordering Myanmar, there's an active outbreak in the Delta variants. Essential border trade must still continue, and this is a big threat to spread the disease to the neighboring countries. Uh, even now among ASEAN nations, there are huge outbreaks in Thailand and Indonesia. Myanmar becoming a super spreader nation in their vicinity would not be the best interest of the neighboring countries or, the for, for, or for the entire world. And, uh, it, you know, the hunter is still attacking, actively attacking on the medical professionals. and and um, targeting on the pro-democracy uh, pro protesters amid these dreadful COVID crisis. Instead of focusing on preventing and treatment of COVID-19 infections, the hunter is going to build 10 new crematoriums in simultaneously at cemeteries in Yangon. So we want to tell the international community that the hunter has weaponize COVID for their own political gains. The resulting damage is almost literally immeasurable. The daily death toll issued by the gender health ministry is far lower than the true number. So, uh, Bummer, I would like to warn the international community that Myanmar, which borders countries that are home about the third of the world's population, risks becoming a super spreader state. That is what Mr. Tom Andrews concerned, the UN expert on the country, and I completely agree with him. And there was another forecast that became quite famous or even infamous, we can say, by Mary Callahan. She wrote an article talking to a healthcare worker that suggested that the death toll, the death toll could go to 10 to 15 million. And she clarified this was not entirely from COVID. This was from related diseases and problems overall with um, the spread of the pandemic and and kind of secondary um, uh, secondary uh, res- um, sorry, yeah, indirectly no yeah I, indirectly right right so other people have pushed back and have said that of a population of 55 million people that 10 to 15 million deaths is a bit overblown but what are your thoughts on this number do you think that there's some accuracy to it or do you think that it's a bit exaggerated yeah uh, I'm not sure about that but if we, we are trying our best to fight against the uh, this murderous regime. Uh, we are trying our own ways. We are trying to protest uh, peacefully to show the world that we reject the military coup and we want our true leaders back. We want to the country to return to the democracy. But uh, that was 
this has been going on for over six months. Over 1,000 people have been have died uh, have died due to the direct actions of the coup. And as you have mentioned before, they, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many cases who are uh, many people who are dying uh, due to the uh, indirect factors. There are many deaths, and and um, I, I want to uh, emphasize that if there is inaction from the international community and the United Nations, the number could be true for Myanmar, and we have been losing our people every day and these people are not just nobodies they are our country's future generations and the parents of these generations and we are losing them every day and we are seeing those tragic stories and hear and uh, and hearing uh, hearing those tragic stories and seeing th those incidents and this has have been affecting our mental health also. You know, it's really difficult to continue our, uh, how can I say, uh, continue living. We don't have social life. We don't have uh, uh, um, a true happiness. We, uh, because inside, we, we are very, we are, we, all of us are heartbroken because we have, seeing those tragic incidents and stories and uh and we um and that's enough for us you know and yeah I, I can't even imagine that. And you reference how the one thing the military has done is to order the building of more crematoriums and that brings us into a fairly morbid part of the talk which is simply what how does one even start to handle all of the corpses that are now coming at these unprecedented numbers and i've heard reports that the crematoriums that are now in operation are going 24 7 and they're not able to burn the bodies fast enough because there are so many there were rumors that the uh, the garbage incinerators of YCDC in Yangon were being used to dispose of bodies that were just starting to find piled up on the streets. What are you finding about this grim reality of how many bodies and corpses are now developing from the death rate going up and up and the state's ability to simply handle the business of disposing of these bodies. This is a, a terrible, terrible thing to have to talk about. You, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers that are released by the official data by the Ministry of Health and Sports uh, are, are truly re representative of the actual situation on the ground. Because Yangon alone has been reported over a thousand deaths daily over the past few weeks, according to multiple testimonies for the volunteers involved in the handling of the bodies in various cemeteries and verified media reports. And that's not even considering the outbreak is as bad, if not much worse in other parts of the country, especially the rural areas. That, uh, this is not even considering the outbreak is as bad if not by wars in other parts of the country. 
especially the rural areas, where the healthcare coverage has historically been poorer than the urban areas. So, the 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 sharp rise in the debt is a stark contrast to the previous record around hundred deaths per day. And we we have all the reasons to believe that many of these deaths have not been counted toward COVID-19 cases and thus do not contribute to the national numbers because of the lack of testing capacities. The practical uh, the, the practical need to actually dispose the bodies that are coming at this high of rate, what do you know about what is happening to the corpses, where they're being left, and the state's ability to handle disposing of them? Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure about that because, you know, to be, to be honest, I, 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 uh, all, I believe many of the doctors are currently overwhelmed with these COVID cases. We don't have mm. even time to watch the news, you know. I, I, I didn't even check my Facebook for over mm. a week. I didn't even, mm. I don't even know what's actually happening because all our focus and energy, all our energy and our mind are focusing on the COVID cases. So I'm sorry I, that I couldn't answer a question because uh, I'm, I'm not sure I could answer this question because I'm not updated with recent news. Sure, no. That, yeah. Understood, understood. That's fine. And then on that note, can you give us some sense of what your normal day looks like during this third wave? What are you actually doing during the day? Uh, currently, I'm working at a hospital. But, uh, and uh, because I have to, you know, earn for a living. But on our duty off hours, on our off days, I, I have been seeing the patients uh, at the theoretic clinics and 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 via teleconsultations, and uh, you know, you know, I I don't feel like I live, I don't have a personal life anymore. Uh, I I haven't seen my mom for weeks because I'm super busy with these COVID cases, and uh, all our focus is just on on the COVID crisis. But still, we are losing many many cases because of the lack of oxygen because of the uh you know uh the, the these medicines uh, the price i'm not sure how to say that the the prices are going high rapidly so there are many challenges that we are facing right now so even when we are trying our best to combat the COVID crisis uh, there, there are many limitations and challenges in this current situation, uh, and um, we, we, even though we try our best, we don't feel like we have done enough. We don't feel satisfied. We, we don't feel good. You know, we only feel that we, we, we had to try harder because uh, many cases are uh, there are many cases who who uh, who didn't get. Uh, proper medical treatment, and those who are taking home remedies, and those and and the and the most dangerous one is the people, uh, uh, getting 
medical advice and, and, and misleading information from the social media Facebook. And I have seen a patient who came with a stroke. And uh, according to his CT head, uh, he is having a hemorrhage in his brain. And when I get history from his attendants, he, he took all the information, all the drugs that he get from, the, uh, from his social media, Facebook, to prevent the COVID, which includes the anticoagulant drugs. Those are essential in treating of COVID cases, but, but at the same time, these are really dangerous uh, drugs, you know? which need to be carefully monitored by the physicians and, and they are controlled drugs. But the people, are, uh, you know, for the, for the people, they, they, they don't know where to get themselves tested to, to, to get them treated. That the only thing they can do is to treat themselves with, with the information all they can get from the social media, which is really dangerous. And, and we are seeing, uh, they are having side effects from those misleading information and so on. Yeah. Mm, and as you're helping people out and administering this aid, are you concerned for your own safety? Yes. Uh, we are never safe. We don't feel safe at all in this situation, but we have no choice. Uh, we can, we can only still in hiding and, uh, in this crisis, because there's already a shortage of doctors, and, and many are die, and and uh, sorry, many are in custody, and some are uh, some are dying due to the attacks by the armed forces. So uh, we have no choice but to risk our own lives to uh, to take care of our own fellow men, even in the great threat of our own security. So knowing these risks and knowing what you're up against, where do you gather the courage to continue to help people in this way? Are, are there, I imagine there would be good days and bad days. And I wonder if there's days where you're overcome by fear or by hesitancy uh, and when those moments come where you're, you're gripped by some negative emotion, how do you gather the courage to go out another day and help another set of people knowing the risks that that continually incurs when you do? Yeah, you know, for every case, there, there's always a silver lining. Uh, even, uh, even when we are living in a such... Uh, how can I say, tragic situation, we find the unity that we haven't seen uh, um, in history. Uh, and uh, such unity and and, uh, and, uh, and the generosity of the people, if that's the silver lining in the situation. And people, are, uh, um, there are many volunteers who want to help those in need and who, who don't care about their own safety to take care of others, uh, and and we believe that those uh, uh, I'm not sure how to how to say this. Sorry, 
Um, those people motivate us to continue our walks. You, you know, and mm. yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's I I, I, I don't know how to answer the question, and we feel that it's uh, the 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 main reason is uh, we feel that it's our responsibility or uh, as uh, to fulfill the mission of uh, of the doctors who don't have a voice anymore and who don't uh, have a chance to participate in the humanitarian duties. So we believe that it, it is our responsibility to fulfill that, that spot that is left by them. As an outside observer, it's really something to hear this contrast of such evil and inhumanity and terror on one side and such courage and selflessness and sacrifice on the other. And to see these two forces pitted against each other or at least operating simultaneously, it's there's something tragic in seeing these fundamental human elements at play in this moment. Yes. Right. Hmm. What it, this time, it seems like it's really bringing out a depth of emotion and values on either side and seeing them juxtaposed side by side is, uh, is, is something that one rarely really sees in a dynamic or in the world. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's really hard for the doctors to, to cope with this situation because we are really exhausted, both physically and mentally. Our our mind, uh, you know, uh, we are getting psychological traumas every day since the start of the coup, and it's really, really difficult to fight uh, to stand up again and fight, but. Uh, feel like if we're not to, if we stop here, all our effort will go nothing. All the life that I've lost will go wasted. They didn't. We, uh, their lives are. Uh, they risked their lives so that we would continue uh, in this path to the democracy. So uh, we couldn't give up here, even in this distress. And, and those challenges, we have to continue on this journey no matter what. So as you're fulfilling your duty to help the people who are in such need and you're being targeted yourself as you're trying to provide this support and so much of your time is spent in taking care of others, as you referenced just now, there comes the question of, who is taking care of you guys, the doctors that are helping everyone else day after day, week after week, and now month after month while they have these targets on their back and they're working in far less than ideal circumstances and facing this level of trauma and terror every day. And then you yourself are human. Doctors themselves are, are human with their own psychological needs and and well-being and stability. So how do you take care of yourself? How are doctors aware of their own needs of well-being and looking after themselves and their own care? 
Yeah, that, that's a good point, and that's totally a great question. And I, I'm not sure if you heard about this or not, but there was a suicide of a doctor because she left a world that she didn't... Uh, uh, she, she committed committed suicide because she feels like she hadn't done enough for the community, for mm. our uh, fellow uh, colleague doctors and medical professionals. So she feels like uh, she hadn't done enough. So that's why she take her own life away and, and committed suicide. And those oh, tragic incidents are traumatizing our mental health. But uh, I'm not sure what motivates us to continue this, but just like I mentioned before, we cannot stop here. Um, and uh, we have to continue on this journey no matter what. Uh, even though we are put uh, physically and mentally exhausted, um, yeah, we have no choice. You talked about how you've been motivated by your oath, by the unity of the people, by the hope for democracy. So these are things that motivate you. But the thing I'm asking about is how do you take care of yourself when, and, and doctors in general, when you're facing these terrible circumstances day after day and you're looking after the well-being of others, what have you been doing to look after your own well-being? Yeah, I think that's the peer-to-peer -peer support by the medical community. I think that that's and that answer your question because the medical community in Europe are very united. We feel that if someone else insulted or, or, or it's someone from our medical community was insulted, we feel that it is insulting the whole or uh, every one of us. Uh, we feel like we are one. Uh, so uh, that, that I think that's why that that's one of the factors that uh, so, um, give psychological support mm -hmm. <laughs> that is the peer-to-peer -peer support by the medical community yeah that, that mm -hmm. I, think, I can think of the, uh, that's the only one well, that's great. That's great to know that that's taking place in some form. Uh, are there any things that you do personally that look after your own self-care? Like I've spoken to others who pursue some type of meditation or some quiet time or some uh, aromatherapy or, or various things they do in their own home that just give themselves that little bit of peace. Is there anything that you've pursued? I, I couldn't. Uh, focus uh, on mindfulness because of there are many things inside my mind going and uh, many thoughts about what's happening next or um, or the, the tragic incidents that happened recently so it's really difficult to focus on mindfulness at this time so for personally I, I try to speak with some colleague who, who share similar interests in 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 the pursuit of this mission and and um, I think that that's the only thing that uh, that can psychologically support 
the talk for, for me, yeah. Mm, so you had a history or a background in mindfulness before the coup, but you're not really able to follow that practice now, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Mm, what tradition were you involved in? What kind of practice of meditation and mindfulness did you did you follow before the coup? Uh, uh, by medication, you don't have negative thoughts, and uh, so which uh, which will I'm not sure how to say which will make you you peaceful and and don't have negative negative thoughts, and you can uh, have great insights, so so that our patient, our parents, and our and many other religious person trying to promote in medication. So, and I personally, I like it a lot. And I, 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 I try to go to many med- medication center and then give uh, volunteer medical care at, at those centers every year. I, I like mm. to go to those centers and, and uh, medicate myself and in in the, in the free time i give medical care of the other participants and, and that that's or what i do every new year new year of new memorial year but uh due to the coup it didn't happen and i don't have a chance to uh, go to that nor i can even focus myself at home Mm-hmm. And what kind of meditation tradition or lineage or teachings did you follow? Yeah, actually, med- medication is simple. You just try to focus on breathing in and breathing out and nothing else. And uh, one, of course, the, the mind is, you know, the, it's, it's such a very interesting uh, structure of the body because it can have millions of thoughts in a second, but we, we try to focus it on the uh, breath and, and which makes us more insightful and, and good in focusing on, on our everyday lives. Uh, but in reality, it's not that easy. It sounds very simple and straightforward, but in reality, it's not that easy. It takes a lot of um, uh, mental power to focus, to keep you focused in this uh, uh, short time. Yeah. And did you follow like Mogok or Mahasi or Sunlun or what type of method? Uh, Personally, I prefer Mogok method. And what did you like about Mogok? Uh, you know, it's it's just trying to uh, focus on uh, uh, in Mogul method. You you don't have to focus only on the breathing. Uh, and some of the lecturers said that if you uh, if you feel the numbness of your legs while you're meditating, you can focus uh, refocus it into the, the legs. So you don't have to force yourself to just focus on the breath. You can you can also focus it to the numbness, uh, numbness of of the limbs, so that uh, you uh, the, the 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 numbness will go away, and then you can refocus it into the breath again. So 
that's what I like about because uh, most of the cases uh, all of them trying to force uh, the the participants to just focus on the bread but it's it's really difficult for us to do so you know yeah I have yeah I so I personally like more goat method this is the parisamupada that is a central part of the teachings yeah that's right that's right and so is part of your practice studying that and trying to understand these um the, the law of cause and effect as well yeah because as a doctor the, the critical thinking and logical thinking is really important and hmm. medication promotes uh, as in those thinking because we have to make critical think critical decision in, in a short time in uh, especially in emergency cases we don't have hmm. much time to uh, decide, think and decide so, because uh, every second is valuable. So we have to make uh, most appropriate decision in a short time and the medication mm -hmm. can help us in doing so. Yeah, That's why I like mm -hmm. it a lot. Right. So you mentioned how even during the coup, you're not really able to follow any practice because your mind just simply doesn't have stability. But before the coup, you had a background in going to a number of Mogok retreats and, and committing yourself to the method. So even though you're not able to practice now, do you find that your background of practice before the coup has come to help your work now? Yes, I think that that's, that made me calm even, uh, uh, and focus on continuing uh, my uh, my path against uh, in the pursuit of this mission, even after facing those agonizing and tragedies, uh, I can continue this journey with with, with a full um, attention and focus, and 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 I think that's because of those training and and those. Uh, habits from the medication that I did in the past. Mm, that's really beautiful. Can you give any example of some situation that you faced after the coup that was particularly, I don't know, dangerous or difficult or challenging or complicated, and you felt that you were able to handle that situation because of your background in meditation. Is there any specific example that comes to mind that illustrates that? Yes, totally. Uh, one incident that I mentioned before about the, my colleague being abducted at, at the Charity Clinic has shock. That came mm -hmm. as a huge shock to me that mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know what to do at the time. I was literally freeze. My whole body was freeze literally, and I my mind my mind was blank. I I I couldn't make any decision at the time, but I'm trying to remind myself to refocus that if I'm uh, standing like that, I will also getting I will also get abducted together with my clay. But if we, if I can refocus myself and continue those uh, humanitarian aids that is left by my colleague and help them for, uh, from from the outside, so I try to make some logical thinking. Uh, I could I could make some logical thinking 
even in that shock shocking period but and mm. that, and that's thanks to all the trainings and methods from the medication that's great that's great so because of your background in mogok you were able to face a traumatic situation and respond without reacting to the terror or the fear but in, in a more um a more logical and calm way yes that's right yeah right i had a similar situation where my background of meditation came to help me in one of the most um, scariest times of my life, which was actually in Myanmar in 2008. I was there when Nargis hit, Cyclone Nargis, and I was in Yangon, and I happened to be in a condo that received the forces of the wind on both sides. So of the whole building, the condo that I was in was the one that was hit with the most force. And it was a, a, a terrible situation of the roof starting to come off and the water starting to pour through everything, the windows breathing in and out and about to explode. And when I stepped outside the door, I saw that the electrical paneling in the ceiling had all come down and there was debris all outside of my door in, in the condo building that I was in. So in other words, I realized I had a choice of staying in my condo and having the, the entire thing destructed and and being torn apart or trying to escape the condo but having debris and wires and electrical things all around and perhaps being hit by something and I started to panic and uh, as I think many people would in that situation of having a, a choice between two very bad options and not knowing which one was going to give greater survival and every second kind of making the situation worse, whether you left or you stayed. And at that moment, I, I realized I was panicking and my background of meditation kicked in. And as my apartment was literally falling to pieces, I sat down on my sofa and I just observed my breathing uh, because I thought I... I am in such a bad mental state, I don't know what to do, and I can't make a good decision. I need to at least try to calm my mind enough to try to make a decision of, of what I do and where I go. So as my apartment was being torn asunder by the cyclone, I sat down on my sofa, and for five minutes, I just did anapana and just tried to observe my respiration going in and out of my nose just to try to calm myself enough. And after about five minutes of that, I was still in... in terrible panic and and fear. But suddenly I had this thought that uh, as the mind started to calm just a little, I had this thought occur to me, oh, you're not a victim. You're, you have a choice. You have agency. You, you can do something. You can decide to either stay in your apartment as it's being torn apart, or you can run out of your apartment and try to escape even though things are flying everywhere. And you might not be safe, you might not make it, you might not survive, but you're not a victim. You can choose which one you do and then do it as successfully as you can. Don't just sit and wait for bad things to happen. And that thought occurred to me only because I had sat down and calmed my mind through this meditation practice. And I, I don't want to say I was, I suddenly had this moment of Zen calm where I was just completely okay with everything. No, I was panicked and I was terrified, but I had enough mental capability to realize I could do something that I had, uh, 
agency and choice in, in what I did in this disaster. And so that moment in my mind shifted and I thought, okay, let's make a detached judgment are my chances of survival better by staying or are they better by going? They're going to, they're not a hundred percent in either case, but in which example do I have a better chance of survival? And then how do I do that in the best way possible? And so I, I just kind of sat and thought about it and reflected on it. And then I realized, you know, I think that my chances of survival are better by, by going and try, and I should mention, I was on the the 10th floor and the elevators weren't working. So really there were two bad choices, but I determined that it was probably wiser for me to escape than to stay. So with that in mind, I had a certain sense of fortitude and I said, okay, I'm going to try to escape and, um, and this is the best option for me and we'll see if I can do it. And, uh, and uh, of course I'm here now. So I, I was able to escape. My apartment was completely torn apart and, um, um, with water coming in through, through everywhere. But that was an example of me of, uh, in, in, in my case where, in being in a situation of pure terror, the meditation training came to benefit me in ways that I, I didn't necessarily expect and giving me just a moment of calm to be able to make a better decision. That's a great story. Yeah, totally. And um, thank you for telling me this. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great story. Mm. So yeah, with that in mind, that's why I'm also curious about where it's coming into play with you. And I realize these are two different scenarios in some sense. Actually, the the comparison between what I faced in Cyclone Nargus and what you faced when when you realized that, that the military had abducted your colleague, those are somewhat similar in the sense that they're moments, you know, they're, they're actual moments of terror where the mind is overcome by the negativity of fear and the meditation training kicks in to give options of a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of rest, a little bit of distance and detachment to be able to make better decisions going forward in in that really terrible and really scary state. So in that sense, those two incidences, there is some similarity. But where there's not similarity is the just the the long days that you're facing, you know, we're not talking about a single minute of a cyclone hitting or a military abducting someone. We're talking about day after day or week after week or month after month, where you just have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And, uh, and I think as in the terrible case of the doctor who committed suicide that you shared, there are these dangers that the doctors themselves could be falling apart to some extent, you know, mentally and physically. And that they, and you yourself has said that no matter how much you do, you feel like it's not enough. You feel like, and that's, I think that's under, that's a very understandable human emotion. You feel that no matter how much you're giving your yeah, guilt, right? Survivor's guilt and guilt of not being able to do enough for the people there. So that's, that's more, that's not so much a moment of terror or panic. That's more like, a sustained situation where you are breaking down and have to administer some kind of self-care to keep going and to to keep helping people. So in one of the things you mentioned is that the peer-to-peer interaction really helps of being able to talk to people and, and talk to your fellow doctors and find a way through and get that motivation. And that's really wonderful. And you've mentioned how you're not able to meditate and practice now because it's just the mind doesn't have any moment of stability. 
uh, during that. But do you find during that, even if you're not able to practice now, and I hope you can find carve out some time in some way to to even if you're not doing a, a proper strong meditation sitting, that you at least have some kind of um, uh, uh, some kind of rough awareness that grounds you in some sense. But even if you can't do that, is there your your years and years of mogok training before this moment? Has that been able to kick in to help you to just take care of yourself and be kind to yourself and bring some kind of stability during hard times? Yes, uh, I think uh, that that might help me subconsciously. You know, I, I didn't get to know. Uh, uh, I might not know it. Uh, I might not notice it, but it. I think it helped me a lot subconsciously. Right and. Yeah, because you know, when I faced that uh, the dangerous and shocking situation, I could if I could manage to uh, refocus myself in this situation instead of getting abducted, I escaped, and I and don't think that's just the pure luck, and I think that's due to the these practices and help from. From those medications, and and uh, it really helps us to make logical and critical thinking in 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 such emergency situations. Mm. Mm, right, right. And I wonder also your practice as Mogok, and Mogok is known for being something more of an analytical and critical and intellectual practice where you're not just closing your eyes and going into the body, but you're also studying, analyzing, thinking. So I wonder if Mogok particularly suited you because you're in an academic medical profession. Yeah, that helped me a lot. And and many, I find myself that I can, uh, you know, it is more easier. It is easier for me to understand uh, the, the, the process and the pathologies of the diseases better after I enjoy these medication practices. Because instead of just uh, reading the passages, I'm trying to analyze this and I'm trying to understand the depth of every text so that uh, it is easier for me to uh, to remember it and, um, um, you know, I can an- understand it in a short time. And, and, th- and, and that's thanks to those trainings and practices from the medications in Mogok. Mm, right. So your background in meditation has actually helped you to be a better doctor and to absorb information faster and at a greater depth. That's right. That's right. Mm, right. So I, I want to ask a question that kind of combines your background of Buddhist practice and belief with the terror that you're facing and the evil that you're up against. So you mentioned that you look at the behavior of these soldiers and the military and you no longer see them as people. You see them as monsters and what they're doing. You can't relate any humanity to some of their actions. And you're not unique in saying this. I've heard this from many people and facing what is being pushed upon them now. So with this in mind, looking at 
the the soldiers and what they're doing and, and your characterization of them as monsters and your background as a Buddhist, do you have any capacity right now to think of sending metta to them, of wishing for their well-being, or given the stakes and the chaos of what's happening, is that simply something that your mind just can't go to right now? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly. But I think even though they appear that they don't care about the tragedies and they don't care about the uh, the that that people which is caused by them, those incidents are also I believe that those incidents are also hunting them in, in their subconscious mind. They, they, uh, uh, they, 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 they might seem uh, not giving a, not giving care about what happened to, to, to other people, but deep inside, uh, these might even haunting them every night. They are living in terror, and people are getting uh, the will and the, the enthusiasm of the people are getting stronger and stronger. Uh, even when we are relentlessly repressed. But I think they are the one who are living in fear because they know they are doing uh, they, uh, they are doing the evil thing, but they keep doing so because of you know, years of uh, you know brain um, how can I say brainwash by by, by their a regime, murderous regime, so they have to continue doing so. But deep inside, they know this is not right, and this must also hunting them every night. And yeah, they couldn't line it to you. You can line to yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's very true. That they probably are suffering in all those ways, and that's a good reminder about the universal human suffering that's in all of us, no matter where we come from and what our backgrounds are and what is coming up for them based on what they're having to face. Uh, and I think that's good to keep in mind. I still wonder from your background as a practicing Buddhist and knowing that the Buddha did advise that we are to send metta to everyone, we're to send well wishes to to all beings, even and in the traditional way that meta meta ascent. You know, first you you share you you share your uh, your good wishes and your meta with those that are are close to you and you have good relationships with, and then you move on to neutral people and you cast them in different directions. And there's different ways of going about it, but in every formulation, the last on the list is always the enemies, the people that we don't like and that we disagree with. And the reason that it's last is the expectation that we build up this kind of good feeling and good wishes and this momentum for those that are easier to care about and send good wishes for. And then once that energy is flowing, it gets to the end of the line and it eventually is strong enough that it could even go towards those that we don't necessarily like. And I know this might be a sensitive question and it might not be one you're ready to answer and might not be something you're capable of, which would be totally understandable. But I'm, I'm just curious if there, if you feel that 
there's any ability right now to think of meta for these people that are causing you so much immense suffering and that causing the people that you're administering so much immense suffering or if at this time that's just simply a place that the mind can't go at this moment yeah totally it's really difficult to say exactly but you know the the religion every religion is uh deep you know we we can only understand the true meaning of a religion is by years and years of practice in them we cannot say that it is not true because we we don't know it in detail you know uh mm-hmm. like uh we we cannot uh it's it's really easy to confuse the religion in, uh, in, in this critical situation because uh in buddhist we believe that what goes uh what if you do good deeds good things will happen to you if if you don't if you do bad deeds and hurt hurt others or the similar things might be happen to you but it is really difficult to believe in that logic in this current situation because hmm. military and the armed force has been hunting and attacking the innocent civilians including the one year old innocent child but um some people some don't think that they are not uh you know getting the punishment and uh, they deserve so that's why many youths have turned uh, became atheist because of this uh, incident but for personally i believe that there are many things that we don't understand and we cannot deny it because we we lack experience and in in uh in in understanding of the true meaning of of it you know that that's why i try to uh focus the religion and uh, and and the current situation in a separate way we, we you can confuse with that yeah mm. there was a famous incident of the massacre in lengthaya that was several months back and there was a doctor that was there trying to help people and became overwhelmed by the suffering and the carnage and the death and the blood around him and ended up writing a kind of essay or a poem about his experience that went viral and became very famous and one of the lines from his writing that has been repeated over and over during the protests I'm paraphrasing he said something like at at one point I just start to wonder am I saving more lives with a scalpel or with a gun and i wonder if you have as a doctor have also had that kind of reflection given the uh um the response of what's happening with the military you know we are we have been trained uh to give medical care and and taking care of the sick and injured we are not trained to hold guns we are not trained to uh have come back with the uh, other people so uh having medical knowledge and uh doing emergency life saving measures that that's what we we are expert on so for personally i believe we should focus on taking care of those or or giving health education of the first aid training 
instead of those uh, uh, you know that we are not familiar with because that would be a waste of human resource to the medical mm. professional that that's just my personal opinion I don't want to or uh, insult to other people belief and uh, uh, decisions that's just my personal opinion so that's why I, I, I just try to focus all my energy and efforts on on taking care of those of, of the patients and to give training to the general public as much as possible Mm, right, right. Is there something that you think the international community could be doing more to support you at this time? Yes, totally. Because just uh, just like I've mentioned before, uh, the COVID situation in Myanmar is threatening the global COVID pandemic strategy, containment strategy. And uh, Myanmar becoming a super spreader state is risking the whole world. So the inaction from the international will have consequences of, for, for the neighboring countries and the whole world. So, and, and the people in Myanmar have been uh, showing our democracy uh, and, and in, peaceful, in our peaceful protests and, and, our, and our movements. And uh, we, we need international support as, as much as possible for those who are relentlessly repressed by the hunter. But um, so, some of the people feel that they are helpless because of uh, they, they don't feel like they are getting uh, enough uh, uh, assistance from the international. But I, I totally understand that, uh, that there are many you know, processes and difficulties that are faced by the international communities and they want to uh, help as much as they could. But we, uh, I try to, I want to request to the international community that we are losing our future generations every day. So one day of inaction is the one day with unnecessary loss of lives. So we need urgent actions and international intervention as soon as possible. And medically speaking, are there things that the international community can do in a humanitarian sense? Sure, sure. So uh, personally, I think uh, the, uh, the international community should focus on the protection of the medical professional so that we can uh, save more lives. You know, there are many, uh, you know, based on my consideration of the current situation, uh, there are short-term solution and long-term solution. For In terms of short-term solutions, I think... Uh, the protection of the medical professional is is a, a very important thing right now because because of the medical professionals that are in need of the country the most in this critical situation, and the hunter is continuing attacks uh, in this uh, even even amid the COVID crisis. So we need the international community to do all intervention possible 
to immediately stop targeting and attacking the healthcare system and to release all the medical professionals in detention who are in need by the country the most in this critical situation. And, and last but not least, the protection of the medical professionals and volunteers with the uh, highest authorities by the United Nations. And it's really important to implement a neutral workplace where the patients and the healthcare workers are under a certain level of protection by the international bodies. Because hospitals and clinics should be a place accessible to everyone, regardless of their gender, race, religion, or political spectrum, and recuperate safety. And the long-term, yeah, and for the long-term solution is to hold the hunter accountable for the mismanagement of the pandemic in the country and for the crimes against humanity committed by the armed forces. Mm, thank you for that. And I also want to remind listeners that we have our own nonprofit, Better Burma, where any donation given that is earmarked for your cause and what you're doing and administering to the people that are in need, we can definitely support you through any donations that are coming with that uh, specified. So I want to encourage listeners that are hearing this and perhaps feeling helpless, feeling that they wish there was something they can do, that there is something. And listening to this, that any any funds that you would generously provide, we can go to support the mission of Dr. Troy that we're hearing from today. And with that in mind, I thank you so much for joining us. I know it's very late on your end. I, we've been trying to connect for weeks now. And with how much you're doing, your time is very, very limited. And so I really appreciate you using that limited time to be able to come on and talk with us. I know what a sacrifice that is, and I think it's been of enormous benefit to listeners. And before we close, now that you do have this platform, you do have the ear of those that are still with us, is there any final words you want to say of anything that wasn't covered in the talk? Yeah, um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure what to say, <laughs> but you know, I want to say in w one last time. I want to say it one last time at that we Myanmar doctors plead to the international community to help us save our fellow men, our fellow countrymen. Stand in solidarity with us and walk with us. If there's a time to act, it is now. Thank you very much. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, Please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. 
Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration.